and welcome to the New Books Podcast. My name is Dr. Yakir Englander, and today I'm hosting Professor Itzhak Lewis. Itzhak grew up in Jerusalem with trio languages, English at home, Yiddish in school, and Hebrew in the streets. First learning in the ultra-Orthodox school system, and later in the liberal Orthodox ones. From Jerusalem, he moved to New York and wrote his PhD in history and literature at Columbia University. Today, we will discuss his book, A Permanent Beginning, Rabbi Nachman of Braslav and Jewish Literary Modernity, published in SUNY State University of New York in 2020. The essence of the book is to show us how we can understand better theological and literature religious texts by looking on the historical events at that times. He does it by focusing on the writings of the Jewish mystical Rabbi Nachman from the city of Breslev, a mystic and a leader that many scholars looked on his writings from many aspects. Professor Lewis brings new light to his writings by looking on the historical events that are happening around him but also move far in Western society in general. This podcast can enrich anyone who wishes to explore this meeting between history and literature. The Hasidic movement is a mystical one who appeared in Eastern Europe and very fast became a popular movement. Rabbi Nachman, who was born at the end of the 18th century, was one of its main leaders, and his writings are probably the most popular today among the Hasidim, but also in New Age Jewish communities, liberal and conservative. Itzhak, welcome, and please bring us into your book. Sure, yeah, so I think um, Nachman of Braslav is a very well-connected uh, Hasidic leader he has a lineage from his father and mother's side back to some of the greatest names in the movement. Uh, but one of the things that's really fascinating about him is how relevant he seems to be up until today. So just a couple of months ago, I uh, read in the newspaper that El Al had a special flight to South America to evacuate some uh, Israeli backpackers that were stuck there because of the coronavirus. And when the backpackers sat down on the plane, the pilot came on the radio and he asked them all to sing, the whole world is a very narrow bridge. Put them in the mood to be rescued, right? I don't know how many people on that plane know that this is a line by Nachman of Braslav, but I know that these sorts of occurrences are not rare in Israeli and Jewish society today, that Nachman of Braslav has had such a deep impact on the popular level, right? You can see, some of his followers dancing in the streets. You can hear lines that he's written being turned into popular or folk songs like Nomi Shemir, uh, who composed his right, Song of the Weeds or Shirat Savim. You hear a pilot in El Al asking the passengers to sing along with him a song by Nachman of Braslav. And of course, he had a tremendous impact on all of the modern Hebrew and Yiddish authors since his day until today. Not only the great names such as Shai Agnon, Brenner, and Bialik, but also some of the smaller lesser known names, and even up to contemporary novelists who make allusion and reference to him in their books. So he's a really deep figure. And one of the questions that is, was really interesting to me when I started uh, this project was, what is it about him? What is it about someone living in, towards the end of the 18th century, the first few years of the 19th century, um, from such a, uh, such a, you know, such an outlying context, what we would think of today as an outlying context, right? A sort of ultra-Orthodox environment. What is it about him and his writing and his thought that resonates so powerfully and continues to do so for so long? And so in order to do this, I really had to take the reading of his texts, of his stories and of his sort of teachings out of a narrower context of the Hasidic movement and try to read them as fully as possible in the very rich and tumultuous context of the turn of the 18th century. So a word about Nachman of Braslav, he's born in 1772 and he dies in 1810. Very and young. Quickly, very young, yes. 
So this is one uh, um, sort of this is one inclination that readers familiar with him today may have that I'm trying to push back against. Um, because when we say a Hasidic rabbi, I think the first thing that pops into mind is a kind of a Santa Claus figure, right? And Nachman Abraslav died before his 40th birthday. So we're speaking about a very creative, very intelligent young man who is very curious about the world around him and is constantly discussing the news of the world with his students. He's very interested in forming relationships with some of the Jewish enlightenment figures and learning about enlightenment philosophy, general philosophy, history. In some of his teachings, when he discusses uh, ideas with his students, there are mathematical principles that show up, calculations that show up. There are some references to um, literary terminology that he's hearing around him coming from uh, Berlin at the time, where the German Enlightenment is very heavily interested in literary theory. Um, there are some social philosophy ideas that are coming to him from the French Revolution. And so if we just pause to consider this period, 1772 to 1810, during his lifetime, most of the events that have shaped the modern world took place. He's alive during the American Revolution. He's alive during the French Revolution, during the Industrial Revolution in England. He's alive when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is the large uh, uh, um, Commonwealth made up of Poland, uh, Lithuania, um, um, sorry, and two other uh, uh, kingdoms, falls apart and is taken over by the empires, the Russian, the Prussian, right, uh, and the Habsburg. Um, empires. And so what, what we see is he's living through the age in which empires are rising in some parts of the world, falling in other parts of the world. He's living through a period where kings are being executed. Uh, emperors are legislating new kinds of laws uh, about social integration, about modernization. And in all of this, he's a very young and curious leader of a small group of religious followers. Uh, and so to broaden the context in this way to the world historical frame uh, really allows me in this book to, to put my finger on what it is about his, in his thought and in his storytelling that speaks to the modern world that we're familiar with as it is being formed, as it is being shaped through those forces in his lifetime. And the first thing uh, to, to sort of notice about him is the fact that he tells stories. So unlike other uh, Hasidic ra rabbis or leaders in general that may preach or teach or lecture on ideological and or religious topics, uh, he also tells stories and not short anecdotes to pepper his teachings, but very long elaborate stories that are collected and compiled into a book a book of stories that's published posthumously just in 1815, five years after he dies at, by his student. And it's a selection of about 13, a selection of 13 stories that he told out of many, many, many stories. I think at the moment, uh, research into how many stories precisely he told estimates it's just over 160. Hmm. Uh, some of those are lost. Some of those are alluded to in, uh, in other documents. Um, some of those appear as sh shorter anecdotes in his teachings. Uh, but these 13 sort of stand out as the, the, the jewel of his literary production. And in them are fascinating insights into what the modern emancipated sort of uh, um, world of empires that he's witnessing emerge is all about what the what changes are taking place and what he thinks about. So changes. before we will go to these changes, I wonder if you can, um, if you can say a few more words about his choices, his choice to to tell stories because we have in the Hasidic movement stories about rabbis, and this mm -hmm. is very famous. But what's unique about him is that it's not stories about him or about his relationship with his friends, but it's stories which are fantasy it's like and and the divine doesn't appear in many of them mm -hmm. um and he tells them 
do we know something about this choice of genre? Yeah, so there's a, there's a history of uh, thought about storytelling in the Hasidic movement, and not only in the Hasidic movement, uh, that a story is like, can be like coating a medicine with sugar. And that when there's a difficult message or a complicated message to convey, sometimes wrapping it in a story can communicate it more directly and more easily. So this is a, a, a thought about storytelling that is around him in the world that he grows up in and in the world in which he emerges as a young leader. But I would say that beyond this context of storytelling as a kind of esoteric, exoteric mechanism right, of conveying information without actually saying it, there's a much broader context here as well, uh, which is the Hasidic movement, as you, as you mentioned, is a kind of a revolutionary movement uh, in the Jewish world in Eastern Europe. But it's important to keep in mind that this is not the only movement in Eastern Europe at the time. And maybe it's the, the revolutionary Jewish movement, but there are many other revolutionary movements at the time. Uh, and in fact, in Western Europe as well. And one of the great changes towards the end of the 18th century is that there's a rise in this, the emergence of a concept of the people. And so we see in the Declaration of Independence, we the people, right, as the speaking right, first person voice of the Declaration of Independence is the people. In France, the people storm the Bastille. Right? And literature is being change written in that direction, right? But what the context here is that something like a popular movement is formed in the Jewish world in Eastern Europe at the same time as many other popular movements are emerging across Europe and in some other parts of the world as well. So to understand the Hasidic movement as a revolutionary movement, we need to appreciate not only how revolutionary it is within the Jewish traditional context, but how very timely it is in the world historical context as part of a much broader popularization right, of politics, of commerce, as a, a moment in which popular movements emerge and are pushed back against. And, so we, and I can think of some scholarship that has nothing to do uh, with Jewish studies um, about the Industrial Revolution in England, creating a popular right, bourgeois uh, uh, body in France as well, how the, the assemblies and then later Napoleon recognize the popular nature right, of the people and start to speak to the populace uh, in, in that way. And so this is a period when we're going to see uh, some more conservative thinkers calling these, calling the group of people uh, the masses mm -hmm. uh, and assuming that they don't know what they want and don't know what they need. And we're going to see more popular thinkers speaking, right, and representing these groups as the new main character of history, right? The people of become now a new character. So in that sense, right, this is sort of the broader context in which storytelling is also a popular technique. It's, a, it's an element of popular leadership, not to gather followers and speak to them on a very erudite level where if you're not familiar with traditional texts and you're not well-read, you won't be able to follow along. But to find instead ways to communicate thoughts, ideas, messages on a popular level, right, in a kind of a format such as a story that could then be passed on orally and have a much broader effect, not only orally, but in print as well. So print technology is something that is on the rise in Eastern Europe at the time. It took a little longer than in Western Europe uh, uh, to take hold. But the Hasidic movement is the first movement where um, we, have, we see a kind of popular literature being printed. And in fact, the, 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 there's a sort of a printing frenzy in the Hasidic movement in the first half of the 19th century where they print more than any other uh, uh, Jewish movement or Jewish topic or Jewish book the Hasidic book is being printed. And in that context, Nachman of Braslav is in fact the first Jewish storyteller to print his own stories. 
Right? So he tells the stories to his students. They compile them in a book. He reviews them and edits them together with his students. And he tells his students, I want to print, I want to publish a book of stories. And so this is the first time. And how uh, it is accepted in... when it's there after the, so, after the printing of the book? The book gets printed in 1815, the same year as Shivchei Habesht. Which is, other... which is another, it's another storytelling book, but about a rabbi, about the founder of the Hasidic movement. Right. And as you pointed out, Shivchei Habesht, the, the, the second uh, book printed in 1815, is Hagiography. Hegi- it's stories about a rabbi telling of the miracles that he performed and the pa- divine powers that he had. And in the same year, Nachman of Braslav's book is published, and it's a book of fantastical stories. It's not about rabbis. It's not, it's not even about Jews. It's not even about, sometimes it's not even about humans. It's about strange creatures in the forest, uh, strange beings, right, that help other humans along the way. And these two books really define the Hasidic movement from 1815 going forward. But 1815 is a bit of a, a, a leap because Nachman of Braslav dies in 1810. And between 1810 and 1815, some things happen that he never finds out about. One of those being that Napoleon loses the war. So the Napoleonic Wars are over and the borders of Europe more or less solidify into the way they will remain for about 100 years. Uh, but that resolution is not something that happens in Rabbi Nachman's lifetime. And so once these books are published post-Napoleonic Wars, the environment in Europe is already set in such a way that the movements will grow in their own habitats, let's call it. And these books are an important component of growing the Hasidic movement in what is today the Ukraine. Nachman of Braslav could not have imagined this, or if he could have imagined this, it was one imagination among many possible outcomes, uh, which included him imagining that Napoleon was going to conquer Russia. It included him imagining that the Messiah was going to come and stop the war. Right? It included many different kinds of imagine. It included him imagining that he would be able to fly to Jerusalem and back before breakfast, which is uh, why I chose to put this image of the first flight of a hot air balloon on the cover of the book to emphasize the imaginary, uh, the power of imagination that he had. So in this sense, his book is not, is not a, uh, um, shouldn't really be paired with Shivchei Habesh or Hegyagufu geographical literature, I would say that to understand the genre that he's writing within, we need to think more in the direction of uh, Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels. Older styles of fantasy and exploration literature, where you sail out into strange waters and encounter strange beings and new civilizations with strange and unfamiliar rules, and use those fantastical projections to try and understand more about your own world and how it's changing. The fact that such a book can be accepted inside the Hasidic movement, I think it's, it's fascinating for itself, right? I mean, we don't... <clears throat> it was not censored. Was it censored when it was published? Or, I mean, was it allowed to, to men in the yeshiva, in the institute, to read his book? So in the Hasidic movement, it became a very popular book. But when we talk about the Hasidic movement, again, as a popular movement, the book doesn't need to be accepted among the 10 or 12 students that made it into the yeshiva. It needs to be popular among the thousands right, of, quote-unquote, working-class people, right? Peddlers, peasants, you know, city, uh, urban folk uh, that are interested in these stories and that feel that it resonates with their, with their experience of their world in some way. So in that sense, it was widely uh, accepted. Um, by the time it was printed, there wasn't too much censorship to it anymore. So the censorship and, and editing, and sometimes it's unclear what is censorship and what is editing, uh, took place before the book was printed, mostly in uh, Nachman's lifetime. And so it was a, a, a big success together with Shivchei Abesht, right, and contributed to creating or solidifying a clear movement out of the, the followers of Hasidic rabbis. Thank you. So 
I want to delve into one of the stories to so take one mm-hmm. short story um, and and the, the stories that we choose to to try to to use in it as an example is about wheat <laughs> which mm-hmm. is interesting yeah. it's it's nothing about it's nothing about the divine it's nothing about religious things it's about wheat can you give us um A little bit about the story and how you understand it and or or what Reb Nachman is using in this story in order to tell us sure um, it's a short story I think I might even be able to just read it Please, um, let's say it but so this is a short uh, story called the parable of the wheat and it appears in an appendix to the book of stories so the 13 stories in the book are much more mostly longer, some of them 30 pages long. And this is, appears in an appendix as a, a parable. So this is the story. That once the king said to his beloved viceroy, when I gaze in the stars, I see that all the wheat that will grow this year, whoever eats from it will go mad. Therefore, advise me. What should we do? The viceroy answered, therefore, we should prepare wheat in advance so that we don't have to eat from the maddening wheat. And the king answered, if so, when we alone don't go mad and the entire world will go mad, then it will be the opposite, that we will be the madmen. And since we cannot prepare enough wheat for everyone, therefore we will certainly have to eat from the wheat as well. Just this, that we should make a mark on our forehead so that we know in any event that we are mad. So that when I see your forehead and you see my forehead, we will know by the mark that we are mad. Love it. That's short, right, a parable, but encapsulates so much. Let's try to understand. So I think first I'll start with uh, the context, just to understand this story is being told by, right, by Nachman of Braslav. And this is about 15 years after the French Revolution. So the... unstable position of kings is already established in his world. Kings have been executed in his lifetime, which was unimaginable before him. Secondly, um, kings going crazy are not something new to him either. Right? In the first years of the 19th century, George III, the king who, quote-unquote, lost to the colonies right, to the, of America, was um, goes mad and has to be has to be put under the watch of a physician and uh, uh, because he's exhibiting sort of crazy behavior and so the idea that a king could go crazy is another idea that is fairly novel in the time in that moment so the third is to appreciate how deep the metaphor of God as king is runs in the Jewish textual tradition. And that when a Hasidic leader tells a story about a king, what he's doing beautifully, I think, is hitting both of those points, right? His, his story resonates with the metaphor of God as king, which is everywhere in the prayer, right, in prayer, Jewish prayer books, but also alludes to real historical kings during his lifetime, That lost their throne, went crazy, right? had to deal with sort of a mass change in the fabric of society. And the first thing to, 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 to see in the story is that this is something that really concerns Nachman of Bronstadt. If this is what's happening to earthly kings, what does this mean about the divine king? Is God will God as king be executed? He, of course, had no, no right, uh, inkling that this is any direction philosophy was going or that, you know, 100 years later, Nietzsche would proclaim that God is dead. 
But the possibility of kings being executed or going crazy or turned away from by their people is very real and concerning to So in this context, he's telling a story from the king's perspective. And this is a, a, an interesting perspective to take and for the, the narrator. Friend, right? We have here yeah. the, the king and the friend, which yeah. I wonder, it's like Sherlock Holmes and his, right? And, and yeah. in a way, can it be also Reb Nachman from Breslev and his favorite students, Rabbi Nathan, um, and yeah. questions about um, how do we deal with the changes in the Jewish world that are happening in their days, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely part of it. Um, but I didn't, I didn't mean um, to imply that the story is allegorical in some way. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, certainly a reading of the story could say that what we should do is identify who each of these characters stands for, right? Mm-hmm. And then we could say, this is really a story about Nachman of Braslav and his disciple, or this is really a story, right, about the king of England and his doctor, um, or about, right, uh, 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 the king of France. Yeah, um, I think that all of these are possible readings, but in an even, on an even deeper level, the question is not who do these characters allude to, but right. how is the dynamic between the characters changing throughout the story? And then whoever they relate to, right, the, uh, the lesson would be to appreciate the changes that are taking place in society and the world around them. So the conversation between the king and his, and his advisor, the viceroy, uh, is interesting because there seems to be a disconnect or a, a sort of an information gap between them. Um, firstly, the king has some knowledge of the future. Right? He's able to stargaze and foretell the future and his advisor is not. But secondly... His advisor, or let me say first, just to to clarify the situation here, in case it wasn't clear from the the story. So the king sees in his stargazing fortune telling that next year's crops of wheat will be infected in some way that anyone who eats from them will go crazy. And so he needs advice what to do about this situation. The story, uh, this story echoes folk narratives of the poisoned well. And these go back to ancient Persia and India, where the king says, I see somehow in my premonition or in future telling or from some spy network that someone has poisoned our water source. What should we do? So the poisoned well as a genre, as a sort of type of folk narrative already exists for hundreds of years before as does the possibility of going mad when eating wheat. I think this is called St. Augustine's fever. I'm not sure that I'm getting the saints correct, right? But there is uh, just a few decades earlier, uh, a kind of fungal infestation in wheat in Central uh, and Eastern Europe that causes um, reactions that causes people to respond, get sick and start behaving in ways that were interpreted as madness. And so this is also a kind of recent scientific or uh, uh, let's say public health concern that existed before Rabbi Nachman's lifetime, but not in the very distant future, is food actually causing, and especially wheat, actually causing people to go crazy. So in all of this context, the king needs to figure out what to do and asks the advisor. And the advisor gives him a kind of Marie Antoinette answer. He says, what do we care about all these people that are going to go crazy? You stockpile your own food and we'll be fine. These other people are of no consequence to us. You're the king. You have the power. You know, you can eat cake every day. They, what, what, is, what issue is this to us? Uh, but the king doesn't see it that way. Right? So this king uh, is a kind of post-French revolutionary king hero, right, or king character in the story, and he realizes that it's not that simple. You can't just ignore the masses, so to speak. I love it. Can right? you see the, the people. In, yeah, yes, yes. Thank you, Itzhak. I, I wonder if you can also see um, an existential question of the Jewish community in that time, right? How much we want to be 
part of the changes that are happening in Europe and how much we want to isolate it ourselves in order to to protect our belief um, yeah. also in that time we start having the Jewish scholars who are reading Jewish texts but as scholars right yeah. Um, yeah. and and the And the questions of how much we are part of what's happening around us or how much we want to keep ourselves to ourselves yeah absolutely so if we're looking for this kind of uh, metaphor right metaphorical world that the story is setting up mm-hmm. certainly we could read madness as a metaphor for emancipation and then the question would be right, emancipation is coming And whether we want to or not, we will be declared free and equal, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. by the rulers of our land. Right. What do we think about this? And some more traditionalist thinkers would say, what difference does it make what the king says? The king can say I'm free. The king can say I'm not free. It doesn't matter to me so long as I dive into the study of sacred texts and live according to traditional law. I'm free as a servant of God. And so what other kinds of freedoms or rights do I need or do I care about? But here the king uh, has a different take on this, right? And says it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to ignore emancipation, right? This would be a sort of more heavy-handed, direct reading of the story as an allegory of the moment that, that Nachman is living in. But certainly it resonates in the story, right? It's impossible for us to ignore the social changes that are taking place and the, the emancipation that is coming. And he does believe it is coming because Napoleon is galloping across Europe towards the Russian Empire. Um, so if we can't ignore it, what should we do about it? And here, the idea to prepare for emancipation seems to me a very forward-thinking idea by a religious leader at the time. And he's not alone, but this is not broadly... the position of the Hasidic leadership at the time to prepare for emancipation. For the most part, the challenge of contending with emancipation actually ends up consolidating the Hasidic movement and the traditional Orthodox movement into one, quote-unquote, ultra-Orthodox right, movement that will then be a kind of reactionary, anti-modern movement against public education, modernization, etc., etc., And so the idea that we could prepare for this in some way, not by locking the doors and stockpiling our own food, but by engaging with this new environment, or that we have to because stockpiling food just won't work. That's the forward-thinking uh, view that Nachman takes in this and is communicating in this story. So what the king sees has two parts to it. The first is that the king really deeply appreciates What the nature of the social change will be. That is, if everyone goes crazy, except for the king, then the king will be the only one not falling in line with the new norm, with the new normal. I think this is a, a very uh, a timely view of what madness is about for Nachman to have. He's living through the period in which uh, doctors like Philippe Pinel are developing moral treatment, right? Where madmen are no longer being chained to the wall or whipped until the madness exits their body, but instead are being sit down to have a conversation with a doctor about why they think these irrational thoughts, where these thoughts come from, that the idea that you might cure a madman by just speaking to them. Guiding them through some kind of internal mental process is a new idea that's taking place, emerging from France mostly, in Nachman's lifetime. And so to think that the entire society could go mad is also to think that the public is now the, the entity that sets the normal. It's not the king that says what's right and wrong, normal and not normal anymore. It's now a kind of popular formation, and what the majority do is what's normal to do. This is a very new and insightful sort of view for psychology and medicine at the time, and for Nachman of Braslov to have at the time as well, since only one generation earlier, 
it was still acceptable in Eastern European Jewish society, and not only in Jewish society, to beat the madness out of madmen. Or, on the, to the contrary, to see madmen as somehow divinely inspired and listen to what they were saying with the idea that they would have some access to divine inspiration that normal people didn't. And this story has neither of those. The madness is widespread, popular, and the king is the odd one out. So in this sense, the king realizes that he has no choice. He doesn't want to be the odd one out. And he'll have to go along with this or he'll be considered mad. But how do you adapt to this, right, to this future emancipation or this future sort of public madness, right? Both of which I think I would term um, the people define the normal. And so how do you prepare for this? It's a fascinating from leadership point of view because the question of what exactly is the role of the leader, how much the leader need to show the truth to the community or how much he or how much the leader they need to help and support the community and if the community become mad in a way the king must become mad too and i think yeah. about that right i mean if we compare this short story to the first of the 13 stories the king who is humble and yeah. and 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 we have their incredible like a fantasy story about how to find the king and what we learn is that in order to find the king you know that the king is a truthful king who speaks the truth because everyone else next to him is lying, are lying. And in a way, in this story that you bring us, the king is walking with the people. Right. Um, and not so separate from the people as we see in the other story. I wonder, Itzhak, if you can... I, in your book, you mention one of the... Torah, one of the teachings of Rabbi Nachman yeah. uh, from volume two um, and, and, and chapter, chapter um, 28. And, yeah. and it's kind of, in my understanding, it's kind of the same question about how much we should protect our Jewish mystical truth or how much mm-hmm. we need to understands that other people also have access to the same wisdom. And he offered, he offer, in my understanding, a different distinction. Like he created distinction between two kinds of truths or how to read a text. And I wonder if you see this teaching as a dialogue with this story or or... Or do you sit in different way how to think about wisdom or what is madness and what is truth? And I wonder, and maybe it's a more general question. I'm sorry that I'm asking so many questions, but you will take us to the path that you want. But I, I also wonder about the relationship between the stories genre, genre and the teaching theology genre. Yeah, no, so thank you uh, for the question. Um, there's a strong connection between the story genre and the uh, teaching genre. Um, the stories have uh, some teaching elements in them often, such as the king lecturing his advisor about how to deal with this change. And many of the teachings have a kind of narrative structure where they begin, where they follow a storyline in order to elaborate some uh, intellectual idea. So the relationship between these texts is, is strong. And the, one of the central questions in all of uh, Nachman's thought and writing, one of the central questions is to understand what he calls the place of the Jew among, among the nation. So in a smaller, right, in a, in a narrower context of emancipation, what happens when after emancipation, Jews begin to dress like everyone else, speak the same language as everyone else, live on the same street as everyone else, go to work in right, uh, jobs and join professional guilds or, right, or uh, um, jobs like everyone else. What happens when the closed community sort of starts to enter the broader world and become more and more embedded in it? So this is a, obviously a social question. It's a political question. Uh, it's an economic question. 
but it's also a literary question because it leaves us with uh, right with the, the the with it leaves us wondering how might we tell a story about someone fitting in someone who's different fitting in right how might we tell a story about a king who went crazy along with everyone else and is now just running around doing crazy things just like everyone else can we is can we then no longer talk about that king as the hero of the story the people seem to become the new hero of the story so what will happen to the king right and so similarly in right in teaching 28 of uh, the second volume of Nachman's teachings there's this question as well of the Jew among the nations what happens when a Jew wanders out so to speak right and acculturates among the nations to the point that nothing outside of the, that person's psyche can indicate to us any more that he is Jewish this is Nachman's perspective is about the Jewish community, of course, but this is a broader question that, again, I go back to sort of world historical right, uh, context of so many cultural minorities right, that are being embedded into the public sphere, the socially emancipated public sphere across Europe at the time, and where we can no longer tell the difference between Catholics and Protestants, between Jews and Christians, right? Um, between nobility and just bourgeois society, right? So this, this sort of blurring of the visual, visible distinctions, social distinctions between people is part of what is, is part of the emancipation project. It's a prominent result of the emancipation project. You can think, for example, of debates in France about wearing a burqa in public as part of the very same conversation should the public sphere be opened in this way that no one looks different anymore? Is that part of what makes us one emancipated public? Or can we handle these differences? Right? So how do we handle these differences? Right? And asking this question not from the perspective of a policymaker right? or a kind of ideological pundit, pundit one way or the other, but asking this question from the perspective of a leader from within a minority community that understands, like the king in the story, that this is what's coming, and asks himself, how can we prepare for this? Right? How can we, in what way would we need or might we need to strengthen our community bonds and community affiliations? In what way might we need to strengthen our identity? so that it survives even as it is being stripped of its visible social markers. And this is uh, an issue that Nachman uh, takes up in, in the teaching you mentioned, in teaching two, volume two, teaching 28, um, where he explicitly wants to, under, right, wants to sort of understand what might lead to a situation in which it's impossible to identify the Jew among the nations, and in fact, to confuse a non-Jew for a Jew. So he's imagining a situation in which he's walking down the street, and he sees a bunch of men, I should point this out, men, right? He sees a group of men on the street, and he can't tell anymore who is Jewish and who is not Jewish. Now, the fact that he's even imagining this situation is already unique. And this is why I believe he stands out and continues to resonate to this day in his thought and in his storytelling. No other leaders at the time are even imagining this situation, let alone trying to prepare for it. What they're doing is fearing it, trying to combat it, right? Closing the doors to it or embracing it as something unavoidable, right? as is happening in German uh, Jewish Enlightenment and in small groups of Eastern European Jewish enlightenment, embracing it as the new world, the future. But the king in this story, in the parable, has a more nuanced understanding of it. He doesn't like it, but he has to accept it. He can't shut away from it, but he's not rushing into it. 
right? He's not saying we have no choice but to eat the wheat and so let's go. He's saying we have no choice but to eat the wheat. Therefore, let's make a plan. How will we preserve some kind of identity of ours, right? Pre-madness identity in as we cross over into the mad society that is civil emancipation. And in teaching 28, uh, Nachman has a very interesting suggestion about this. What might be responsible for blurring the lines right, between Jews and non-Jews, blurring the, the visibility of these kinds of confessional differences in society? And he takes aim at a phenomenon that is widespread and growing in his time, which is the printing press. This is an interesting sort of twist uh, in the teaching to say that one thing that we seem to be doing at today, and certainly uh, uh, in his day, this was a new and a growing phenomenon, is we are printing the oral law of Judaism. We're making it accessible to anyone who can read. And this shouldn't be the case. So he's, right, he's sort of complaining, maybe complaining is not the right word, but he's, he's highlighting the negative effect of printing certain religious texts. And he's tying this to the erosion of these social markers in public. In this, he's not alone. There's a long history of debate about whether or not the oral tradition should be printed going back to the Mishnah 2,000 years ago. And Maimonides, who decides to, who has a long preamble about whether or not he should be printing the oral tradition. And <clears throat> a contemporary uh, of Nachman of Braslav, Moses Mendelssohn in Berlin, who has a similar uh, um, thought in his book, Jerusalem, where he says that printing the laws of Judaism lead others to confuse what Judaism is about for what Judaism looks like. And in this sense, Nachman of Braslav is along the same vein of thought. Once these laws are printed, it, it becomes confusing, right, to the outsider, or even, right, misleading to the outsider, who now believes that a Jew is someone who follows these laws. And so we can do away with other, you know, with other elements. In fact, in 1806, Napoleon summoned the Jewish Sanhedrin, and he summoned leading rabbis from across his empire and asked them to compile a codex of Jewish practice. He wanted to understand what was essential Jewish practice and what was not, because his intention was to guarantee freedom of religion to the Jews in his empire, but not freedom of political association. And so he wanted to understand exactly what Jews needed to practice in order to be Jews. The result, of course, is that now there's a definition of what is a Jew or who is a Jew that is completely external and out of the hands of any Jewish person. And in this, Nachman sees a problem. Particularly, right, if, like the king in the parable, he needs to prepare for an emancipated world in which no one knows who is Jewish and who is not, the way to prepare for this is to internalize the tenets of identity rather than externalize them. That is to say, what makes a person Jewish is something internal and inherent in their being rather than some sociological or anthropological um, description of their behavior. Because behaviors will change. Madness will change how everyone behaves. And so if all we have as a definition is what, how we behave, we don't have a long, right? We don't have a definition that can survive everyone going mad in this sense, right? That can survive a kind of broad public emancipation. And so the, right, the identity to be focused on is internal. And stop by not printing the oral Torah, the oral traditions and laws, they will remain internal elements, undefined internal elements, rather than 
defined external elements up to a kind of public scrutiny. This, I think, is the closest uh, uh, that we can get to understanding the metaphor of the mark on the, on the forehead in the end of the, the story. It's to say something, we don't know what it means, right? We don't know what external meaning it has. It's hard for us to define it as anything outside of the person. It only marks that inside the person is or at least was different in some way. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's connecting so many dots that you bring in, the, in your book. Um, like the other story about, um, you know, the advisor who, of the king who didn't let him, to, who didn't let the Jewish community continue to be Jewish and they need mm-hmm. to hide themselves. And then again, we come to the, to the symbol that he carry with the tefillin, the things that you put in your head, that yeah. he understands the inner truth in that. And I also thought about that in a way, what you, what you show us is a shifting toward the psyche, like towards the mm-hmm. inner world. It's like we are not so much in what's, how we act in the world, but we are very much Jewish in our way of thinking, which is so radical to, mm-hmm. to a lot of Jew, the way how we think about Jewish tradition that focus so much about the acting, about the halakha, about right. the law, and here we bring it back to the inner, to the inner Torah, to the oral Torah, to the memory, to maybe even to the stories that we continue to mm-hmm. tell the story. And even if the story is printed there and scholars, we can read it, but there is yeah. a life of the story that continue to walk by itself. Yeah. So Itzhak, thank you so much. Again, thank you for writing this incredible book. A permanent beginning about Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. Thank, Thank you for you. being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>